Hello everyone, Tony here. It's hard to believe, but Dwayne and I started this podcast almost one year ago. To date, we have published over 30 episodes, have had the show downloaded over 1,200 times, and have reached eight different countries. Through it all, we've had a great time, telling and hearing stories and diving deep into the world of human forestry. As with many projects like this, it starts as a totally different idea and morphs itself into its own entity. TreeActions has grown and will continue to. Dwayne and I are always looking for new ways to connect and grow the community. We have opened a Patreon page, which can be found by searching for TreeActions on the Patreon website or app. A link is also posted in the show notes. Recording, producing, and publishing a podcast does not come free. And while this is truly a labor of love, and access to the podcast will always be free, we wanted to develop a way for those of you who wish to support the show to do so. For those that support the show through Patreon, you will get access to the episodes a week earlier and be able to comment should you choose. In the future, we develop more content available only on Patreon. I want to thank you all for listening and for all of you who have reached out to express your appreciation for the show. It really does mean the world to us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tree Actions, the Human Forestry Podcast. And uh, we're excited today for joining us. Uh, I think, well, I'll let him explain where exactly he's coming to us from, but joining us today, joining Tony and I today is none other than Matt Follett, ex- uh, research extraordinaire, researcher extraordinaire. Um, welcome to the show, Matt. You know, I'm really excited about this, this episode because, you know, and I think I might have told you this once before, I think I told you at the Ontario show, but... You know, not only do you are you doing similar research to what Pete Donzelli did, but you and Pete would have been like totally buddies. You would have gone along, and, and you you actually look quite a bit like him. And it's really bizarre to me that there's some like that Pete reincarnate through Matt Follett. But but I, you know, I don't mean that in a weird way. It's it's really and it's so necessary. And I'm so glad that you're doing what you do. But uh, we always kick things off. By asking our guests their first memory of when they feel they connected with trees or with the for, the human force or, or with trees in general, like, do you remember what comes to your mind when you your first memory of connecting um, it, with, with trees? There's there's little sparks here and there. Um, I, I grew up on a farm, um, but I also had access to a cottage property uh, near Perry Sound. Ontario. Um, and I remember probably about the age of 10 thinking, wouldn't it be cool to create forests like up there in people's backyards? Um, and that kind of set me on the path of headed towards horticulture and ultimately arboriculture. Yep. Wow, so that's fascinating. So, what do you what do you think? What what was it about the forest that made you think that people should have one in everyone in their yard? The you know early spring leaves coming out in a sugar maple forest is a pretty incredible place, <laughs> and uh, yeah. the smells, the the sounds, the you know kind of the whole experience yeah. I think is really. Um, yeah, grounding, I guess. And uh, I hadn't spent a whole lot of time in the city, but I have sisters that lived in the city 
And I was like, man, if you could put this in the city, people would probably be happier. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's, uh, I, I, I remember that when I first started traveling to train and, you know, now I, I've, I feel very fortunate to have been able to experience the different seasons and the different forests, the different types of trees that we have in this great nation and, you know, North America in general, even the world. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's so different and so beautiful each in their own right, you know, but, but yeah, sugar maple, like sugar bushes is, yeah, it's very special. Yeah. You know, it's a really cool place. Yeah. Yeah, and if you, I don't know what to say to people that have never experienced it, but like, you know, and 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 not just spring, but the seasons, you know, the seasons and the changes of a particular like a deciduous forest is just fascinating to me. You can't see, you know, the next hill in the summer, but you know, fall winter comes yeah. and you can see three hills over and realize, holy crap, that was always there. No, no, you don't get sure. that in an evergreen forest. You don't, you never, you never see yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. It's a fascinating. And, and, I, and I'm not saying sugar maple's my favorite forest by any matter of means, but uh, certainly it's a, it's, it's a pretty incredible place. <laughs> yeah. All forests are pretty, pretty magical. Yeah, that's, that's the thing I found too, is I, I used to travel when I first started traveling, it was like, this is the best place you got it. And I'd come home and my wife would say like, I'd, I'd have, I found the best place there is. But in over the years, I've just like, man, every place is beautiful. Like every place has places. And I'm lucky. I've been able to hang out with people that show me their favorite spots, you know, and favorite trees. And they're just, it's amazing everywhere. So, um, when when do you think it how did the did it change from you know wanting a, a sugar bush in everyone's yard in the city and thinking everyone would be happier that way to it actually becoming a, a job or something you did like where trees became a bit more tangible of a, of a well, I, revenue I, I ended up working for well. this guy that some people might know uh, phil dickey uh in in in, in kitchener fast forest okay. and uh he sent me up a, a norway maple in about 1992 to take the top out of it because whatever <laughs> that's what we did <laughs> and i got about 15 uh -huh. feet off the ground and i yelled at him told him i wasn't going any higher <laughs> yeah but i i kind of wow. kind of got a kick out of it and uh I, I drove tree spade for him for a while and then i uh went to the school hort and um uh, niagara parks and uh that's where that's where the you know the real the real stuff started happening. So what, what, what do you recall from going to school horticulture in Niagara Falls that, 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 uh, like what, what point did you realize? Oh yeah, this is where uh, the day I met Ian Bruce. <laughs> I, okay. yeah, I, I kind of, okay. I, I ended up at the school. I had climbed a bit, had my own gear. Um, was kind of working on the side, silly stuff. Um, and, uh, but I kind of had this idea that I was going to go back into putting trees in back people's backyards and do landscape design. And uh, then Ian Bruce showed up and he and I got chatting. Oh. And I was like, no, no, we're going back to trees. This is, this is good. Wow. Yeah. So was Ian a teacher of yours or did you work with Ian as well? Um, yeah, hey, I, I did. Um, after after graduating from school, uh, did some work for him. Uh, 
kind of subcontract type stuff was good. Yep. So, so was, was, uh, was trees, uh, a job. And then as that job changed, like, cause you've been, you've been, you, did you ever, I, leave? I have been solid in it. I mean, I kind of say I'm, I'm 28 or 30 years at this point in time, uh, in it. So yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. I, I had the, I had the, the early life gig of being a ski instructor in the, in the winter and a tree guy in the summer. And I thought I was going to keep that going. And I've let the ski instructing go to the, go to the back, much to my chagrin. <laughs> seem to be spending too much time doing tree stuff. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Lots. Do you yeah. still ski? Yeah. Okay. See, that was something that a lot of people wouldn't know about. Oh, Pete really? Well, Pete was. Oh well, man, was yeah. I, I, that's that's on the list. Yeah. I, yeah. I do spend a fair bit of time backcountry on skins and that sort of stuff, but I have yet to I have yet to step into a set of Telemark skis. Yeah. That's, that's on the list, though. Yeah, yeah. I have. I have it almost seems to be a getting to be quite. It's not near as. Back in the day, you'd see it relatively frequently, but now it's really rare. I find to to see someone doing it. Um, so, you know, you're, you're involved with research now. So obviously you didn't, you know, start doing research. I mean, I guess every artist is to do research every day, but, you know, in order to get to that stage would have required more schooling and, 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 uh, to get your PhD, just talk to us a little bit about that, that, how that all happened and, and how you transitioned from school of Hort to being in the industry, to going back to school and, and moving into where you're now, what, what happened and what was the, um, what early on, I got kind of hooked on what we called the journal of arboriculture back then. <laughs> um, that was, that was kind of, you know, when I was at school Hort, I was reading, reading that, that was kind of bread and butter. Um, my partner happens to be an academic. So I had a little bit of a push from her to, you know, sort of okay. do good. <laughs> um, so, so that was there. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I was working out west uh, in Seattle, and I got to meet uh, Andreas Detter, and uh, yeah, that that ah that changed some things for me because uh, I was like, wow, this is cool stuff. And uh, so he and I have been working together since then, and and through him, I was like, ah, I this is fun. I gotta I gotta be involved in this. So um, I, I spent some more time at university. I, I didn't do a full degree. Uh, I just kind of went back to get a better idea of how science worked. Uh, and then I started a master's with my supervisor at University of Quebec at Montreal, uh, Christian Messier. He, I started working for him as a tech in the lab. Uh, he had just acquired the chair, the research chair, the NSERC research chair, uh, in part funded by Hydro-Quebec to look at a whole suite of, of urban forest things in, in, uh, here in Montreal, um, really around the utility distribution network. And, uh, so that's, that was, that was my then in, into the real academic world. And so I started a master's with him and then I went back to, uh, to industry and then we were doing uh, some destructive testing on emerald ash borer, and he asked me to come back, and we 
break some ash trees to see whether or not they were safe to climb. That was 2017, 18, something like that. And, mm-hmm. and we turned it back to school again, <laughs> ever a student. Yep. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, because I, I guess I'm, I'm being presumptuous. Um, I'm I am. I am. We're in the, you, we're in the last still? legs. Yeah. We, uh, I, it, I'm hoping to defend. Oh, okay, I should okay. be done now. Uh, I should have been done this fall was kind of like, you know, when I started, I should be wrapped up now, but I will probably wrap up in the spring. Yeah. No, no, okay. no, I no. I'm not trying to expose anything. I didn't realize it, I, uh, but I know my, my, yeah. my son took five years to do a four year degree. So he, he, I, I can, and he always felt, you know, bad for that in some ways, but I, I, I don't, but you know, and, and the reason I just say that is I know that I remember, you know, there's the, the you know, for research to be vetted and uh, so on, like you, you got to kind of run in that circle and, and, and a PhD and a master's is certainly part of all that. And, and I think for good reason, you know, I'm, I don't think it's a, it's, it's frivolous. It's definitely important to have that. And, you know, I learned a lot of that from Pete as well. And I don't mean to make this all about Pete, but I, you know, that was my first introduction to the world of yeah, working with sure. a PhD that I was also a tree yep. guy, yep. which was very rare and unique, you know? And, uh, you know, the, the importance of being able to vet what you're doing. Yeah, in, exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, and it's, it's, you know, it's a process. We got, we got things, we forms, we got to fill yeah. out and little exams we have to take. I, I have to finish my comprehensive exam here, uh, this fall, which will, I still haven't been given the question, but I will get this question and then I have to dig into the literature and it won't be biomechanics and it, it won't be rigging. It'll be something close. We don't know yet what my guess is it's going to be nursery production because we've talked about that. Um, in the lab a bit and the issues with nursery production. So I got to do that. And then, and then I, then I finish writing and I'm hopefully done. Yep. So is that, is that how all PhDs go? I mean, I'm a little ignorant on that process. So, so you're, you're a professor who guides you through this. They, they will select something that you have to, to do research on to prove yourself as it, it really being able depends to do on, research. Is it that how it works? The department, the university, how, how they are organized. Generally speaking, you select a supervisor that is in an area of research that you're interested in. And so then you may bring your research question to that supervisor or they may guide you uh, down a path to a research question. And then you spend a couple of years hammering away at that question. Um, and so I, I chose okay. my supervisor through working with him prior and getting to, you know, sort of appreciate what he was doing and how he works. And um, he chose me because I guess he thought I wasn't a jerk. <laughs> um, and uh, um, yeah, and so my <laughs> research question is mine, um, but this this comprehensive exam portion, which most um, most doctoral programs will have some sort of outside of your specific question, some sort of way to put, move you out of your specific interest and see how well you understand science. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. I'm wondering if you could, uh, you know, I, I, I know a lot of people and I was, I, you know, was one of them, I guess I think it's fair to say, I think I, I understand the, the difference, but you know, you hear so much, especially now with the internet and, you know, the social media and everything that's out there, you know, someone, well, we tested it, we checked it, you know, put it between two trucks and pulled till it busted or, you know, I've used it this many times and I know that this works and like these types of statements and anecdotal, you know, I don't think they're completely invalid, but can you, could you explain from your perspective, just for the sake of, for education reasons, the, 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 the reason for, you know, someone like yourself going through the process you're going through so that your, your research can, I guess, I guess the word I would use is legitimized or be legitimized and what the benefit is and the differences and the risks of anecdotal field studies versus control, true research, like what you're control. doing. Control. So, I mean, I think that's really what it comes down to. Um, it's understanding how to uh, build an experiment that has the controls that are in place to get just the results you need and not be affected by other variables. So, you know, we're, we're working on this project out West where we, where we dumped a whole lot of hemlock tops to look at the effect of notch angle and notch type on the bending moment in the stem. And that, mm -hmm. that experiment has a whole bunch right. of measures that really have nothing to do with the actual notch angle, but that we're putting together to be the control. So we know that. Um, ultimately, we have a measure that's valid for that individual piece. That's part of it. I, I, for me, I think that's early my, in my science career. <laughs> um, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, for, for most of my career, you know, I, I've heard people talk about the all the nuances like every tree is different and you know you were talking about controls like so when you, you're talking about the best notch the best hinge the you know that these types of things i it's been i guess i've been i've come to believe i suppose would be the term i would use that that some of this will be very difficult to ever come to a definitive on and that's one of the reasons where i was first introduced to this was when they came up with Alberta Part 39, the, the OHS, they added tree care into the legislation. And, you know, we said, well, there's this book called the ANSI Standard. And and one of the things the engineers, the OHS engineers came back with was that they, they were they would not write code or they wouldn't write legislation around anecdotal techniques because they lacked the scientific basis. And they said, you know, really, as an industry, you need to do this. You need you need bodies of evidence to verify the the. It's not just a bunch of old guys sitting around a table saying this is how we do it. But is it? Do you think we're going to see the day? And is it possible to say that because of every tree is different, because of uh, variables of temperature and tree species, are we going to get to a place where we're going to have? scientific data to justify an, either a notch opening or a hinge thickness type of standard that may be able to be, you know, that they'll be able to put in legislation. This is, this is the, the best way based on this research. 
Is that within the scope of I don't know that it is, to be honest with you. I think there's enough variables that um, in the foreseeable future, we probably won't get there. Um, that's not right. to say that we're going to, you know, sort of develop some incredible models on how trees work and be able to understand everything uh, to an exact right. amount uh, within a few seconds of walking up to the tree um, or be able to apply a model to any single tree. I mean, I, I'm sure you're aware right now we've got AI out there scanning, uh, LIDAR scanning trees, trying mm -hmm. to come up with um, uh, risk predictors based on LIDAR point cloud using AI algorithms to predict potential failure points in trees. Like we're, we're getting there. That's, that's where we're at, you know, outside right. of my <laughs> little realm of dropping a few pieces of wood out of a tree and measuring some stuff. Um, so, uh, it's possible, um, with that sort of technology that we would get there. But I think, you know, I hope, uh, one of the things that sort of attracts, I think a lot of people to the industry is the somewhat ability of having some creativity on how we do our job. And I think having more knowledge is good to give us guidance Right. But I, I sort of hope that we stay away from the idea of this is the only way to do something because there's always there's always a situation that might right. call for a different scenario. Absolutely, and it's it's one of the reasons where uh, where uh, standards, particularly or legislation, even more so, doesn't lend itself to that those variables because if you have a you know, it's okay to go 160K and 110K here, and the police decides whether you're speeding or not. You know, they, 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 make, they, have, to, they have to be more definitive than that in, in code writing, right, and, and uh, OH&S particularly. And when it comes to trees, that's very, we, we don't fit those parameters like an electrician would or a plumber would or even an architect building a building, you know. Um, cement concrete they all have these these engineer qualities that fit which which in trees we're always going to have a certain amount of art and science and we're going to we're trying to blend those two right and i, I think it is what's cool about the industry but um it's why i think we often you know get talking more about a trade uh uh aspect of things where there's your experience is blended with the knowledge and and it's left to how well, I, th I think as Arbus, it's, it, the, the, the better we can synthesize a plan and using as much data as possible and experience as possible to come up with the best possible way for that situation. And it's limited by our experience and it's limited by our training, but it is the best we can do at the time. And that's, the, I think, as long as we're able to demonstrate that that we're, we're, we're following that model diligently, then I think it's the best we can yeah, do. Yeah, I think. for sure. I mean, I think, um, and, uh, you know, this question has been asked a couple times before of me, like, you know, what do you think about uh, specking tie-in points or, you know, minimum tie-in point size requirements? And I always, I always take right. about six steps back towards the door <laughs> because... That is the last thing I would ever want to hear me, you know, somebody quote me saying, oh, you know, you can tie in on three inches of wood yeah. if it's 
Manitoba maple and it's on a 30 degree slope, you know, it's, it's fine. <laughs> I'll hang a truck on it. Um, so exactly. it, uh, it, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, it's, it's such an open, um, such an open job, such an open field that um, we, we need to be very flexible in, in how we, how we manage our systems and um, legislation sometimes reduces that flexibility a fair bit. So yeah, I'm, it's not, not that, not that I don't think rules are good because I really like rules, but <laughs> they. Right. Well, anytime I think you're trying to apply uh, guidelines and principles to uh, a living thing, you're going to end up with those challenges. And, I, and more and more, I, I, I can't help but keep relating tree work to what doctors do, maybe even dentists. It, it, you're working on a living patient. You're working on a living thing. And, you know, there. I'm sure that there's brain surgeons that would disagree on the best method to enter the the cranial cavity and to, to perform the specific function, but but they're they're more or less using the same tools and they're more, but ah, I would never cut it like that. I can't believe that guy does that. And they probably have, and, and I don't think, I think it's the only place you'd find the same arguments. Oddly is you know, a, a tree guy with a chainsaw and a, and a brain surgeon with his saw. I, 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 but I can't, I keep coming back to thinking, I think we probably have that. In my, my Humboldt's are definitely 48 degrees on the bottom. Like, and if you're not cutting 48 degrees, you're doing it wrong. That is like, I, I do not want to see any more 45 degree Humboldt's. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the funny thing too, is giving things names, you know, and, 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 and sizes like, you know, I often ask students about what, if they cut a Humboldt, who, oh yeah, Humboldt's the best, you know, and, you know, where, you know, how it even got the name. Most people aren't even aware of Humboldt County and, and how the Humboldt, the origins of the notch, you know, and that it comes, it, it's just funny. Um, you know, when you're cutting seven foot diameter trees, that notch piece is pretty heavy and it slides out a lot easier when it's upside down, you know, hence Humboldt. But, but um, it's a, uh, it's fascinating, and 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 what's also fascinating is no matter who you are, you everyone yearns to hear what the results are. You know, they want to know, and and what a position to be in. I remember Pete being like this, like, you know, they're going to hang on what you say, and you don't want to say it's like, hey, whoa, whoa, I'm just this is one piece of the puzzle. We just yeah. all we did was this, you know, and every scientist I know is always like, hey, all all I know is it apply it did this. In this test, in this way, and I'm not, that's all I'm saying. We, we, had, we had a project. Um, I, I still have to finish it up from a couple of years ago where we looked at, at reduction pruning versus thinning and had accelerometers in the tree and anemometers and measured motion within the tree. And, you know, it was pretty clear that reduction pruning has some definite benefits. Um, and basically, you know, everybody's like, okay, so reduction pruning is the only way to prune? Well, no, <laughs> no, just in this little sample set, uh, we definitely got some results. And look, there's some problems with it too. So, you know, it's not all good. And yeah, so it's, uh, yeah. Uh, it, you know, having said that, Matt, how do you apply the science to everyday tree work then, right? I mean, it has value, like there, there is value in, in answering these small questions. And I think you get the same thing too, like I'll quote is like, 
as soon as you pull out a number, somebody's going to hang something, try and hang something bigger on it than it should be. But so how, how do we apply the science to, to doing the work every day? Well, I, I think I think one of the things we see is that we start to see trends, right? So somebody does a little bit of science, they have some results. Somebody else does something similar, they have some results. So we start to see a trend that builds towards maybe changing a technique slightly because we see over time, you know, um, I, I think an example for me is this idea of, you know, how we dismantle and, and leaving a few limbs below on the tree, below your rigging point. You know, we, we knew about it antidotally over the years and now we've got some data behind it. And, and I think that's one of the spots where, you know, it's, it, it didn't, it's not changing our perceptions of how trees work but it's putting some validity on a particular technique to use it when the scenario lends itself. And so I think, you know, every time we, we get some results from something, it, it doesn't mean that you have to change industry. has to change, but as we see the trends continue to build up and the evidence continue to build up, that that's where we can start to apply it sort of more broadly. Um, and we see it come into practice, you know, um, Yeah, and I've heard people say like it, that that well, I, unfortunately, the one instance I'm thinking of it made you know was almost a negative comment in that. Well, we already knew that. Why do we have to do all this research? But that's exactly why we had to do it. You know, it, it's to give it a bit. You know, just because you knew it or you think you felt it, it's nice to have some some data behind it, right? Some some verification. I mean, you know. People will take a course and go, you know, I learned some of what they learned was that they were doing things the right way. They just had never had that confirmation. I think that's yeah. what science can yeah, really think, do in some cases. Um, you know, it's uh, the research that I am personally doing is not going to change our perceptions of how trees behave biomechanically. Um, and they're not going to change how we do tree work. But I think it is going to help inform us uh, for best practices. And I, I think that the more data we can have for this idea of what are best practices, uh, what's happening up there, kind of gives us a better understanding of, of how to move the industry forward and keep it safe. Um, you know, it's funny, years ago, mm -hmm. I, I, I got to meet Ken James and we were chatting and I described some things to him that I thought were going on in the tree. And he's like, you know, you climbers have such uh, intuition as to what's happening in the tree because you're there so often um, and you've felt and seen so much that yeah, you're yeah. just like squirrels, <laughs> you know, and, um, and it helps to inform science. And so I, I think that there... I think that there is really this give and take within our industry where the science and understanding of what we're doing, whether it's from a safety point of view or a pruning point of view, can be directed by some of the analogy, some of the antidote, um, some of the perceptions of climbers. And then it just kind of kicks around back to help reinforce um, I, you know, our understandings. It's, um, it's just kind of wrapping our head around these big complex structures and 
how they work and how do we manage them in the best possible scenario. Um, it might not be exactly the same every time and it might not be the right scenario every time, but the more we understand them um, and the more we understand what's happening both within the structure and with us working in the structure and um, the, the, the biological response to the pruning that we're doing, you know, it all moves towards being able to better manage. And, you know, we're moving away from making big cuts because uh, on the base of silver maples, because that was what caused us to take a whole bunch of silver maples down because we used to take big limbs off, you know, those little things that we've learned along the way. Um, and I think, you know, that's just what the science is helping to do is kind of move the ball down the field. And um, Yeah. You, you, you know, you, you're, I, I've been mulling over your comment about Ken James and, and I, I guess my interpretation of what he was talking about is intuition, sort of climber's intuition. And where does, how, or how do you see climber intuition uh, no, I synthesizing think with science? I think we have to be Are those oxymorons or do they have I don't want to sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but you know, the intuition of somebody that's got 15 years in the tree compared to somebody that's got five months is very different. Um, so we have to be careful. Experience does lead you to gain knowledge. Um, so we need to be careful where we take where we take our intuition, particularly depending where we are in the career. At the same time, yeah. old folks make mistakes. <laughs> you know, fully experienced climbers make some of the biggest mistakes. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, but yeah, yeah. I think that when we look to ask. Yeah questions or answer questions in the science world, we can really pull from the questions that climbers are asking, um, you know, or, or that pruners are asking, um, depending on what the, the question is. But, you know, it really, from an exploratory science point of view, that's, that's what we're, we're doing. We're trying to sort things out and we get those questions often from the industry itself. Um, some of it comes from the science itself. We answer one question. We're like, why is that? What, why is that the result? That's not what I expected. And so you go back into the experiment or the question and you dig mm -hmm. for more answers. I um, mean, it's cyclic within itself. Um, but at the same time, a lot of it gets driven by, by questions on the trade show floor. <laughs> you know. Right. I wonder if I could uh, pick Not your brain good, a bit from, see what uh, we can do. What it, from a scientific brain's perspective, if I may. Well, you know, and it, it's, it's a personal question. It's something that I ponder about because I've tried for many years to understand how Peter made the decision he did that day. And I know, yeah, I'm not, you know, you're not going to be able to answer that, but I believe it had something to do with his, his, the way he thought as a scientist, because it was really ironic because, you know, when he chose to I tie, am not the, familiar enough I mean, you're familiar with what happened on the situation. Like the, the, the basic, but, you know, if you want to fill place. me in, I can probably... 
well, let me let me just give you the background of it, like of, of what occurred in in his fatality. You know, the, the, it was a lightning struck pine tree. Okay, and it had been struck many times, and which caused the homeowner to want it to be removed. Um, he had it was working with a local tree service that was in his area that he would see driving around, and he he wanted to do some practice doing some rigging before we were going to shoot the art and science and practical rigging videos on a Saturday. This was a Wednesday. And he had done work with his company before, okay? So that that's all the, the connection was to his, that he had to this business. And he would normally show the guys some new things. We had a bag full of a, a new block and porter wrap that he was going to show them later that afternoon. But they didn't, they hadn't gotten into it yet. It was supposed to be just, they were just going to blow the top out of this pine, chunk it down. And I, the, the foreman at the scene called it a sleeper. So anyways, he went up. And the foreman said he seemed nervous, like he had taken, no, he'd taken, and he stripped the tree completely. So there was no talk of leaving limbs for dampening, okay? That, that, a lot of that came out of Pete's fatality. And uh, he had uh, cut a notch, he would have cut a, an open notch, uh, he would have bore cut it. I know he did, but we, we got, we were there the next day, saw the pieces. And he had gone up and he had taken more limbs off, so he tried to get the piece smaller or lighter, but he moved it. He had, was going to take it smaller, and then he moved it into thicker wood. So th there was something intuition, getting back to intuition, that he, that he felt the tree was unstable. But here's where it got, to me, what really was one of the, the things that, that really stimulated failure is he, he asked and directed the ground crew to take the fall of the rigging line to an adjacent tree. So the, the, the line went at an angle from the top of the tree. So it went up around a natural branch union, and he tied off the top, and he was going to catch the top. But the, the, the climbing line, or the rigging line went at an angle. So you can imagine now the bending moment that would have ensued. And unfortunately, the ground person, as often was the case, he took three wraps around an oak tree. So it had, there was no chance for shock absorption. Like no dampening, or no, it was, it was going to not decelerate. It was going to come to a sudden shock load stop. Now, the thing was, about a month or two prior to this, we had done uh, some research down at Champagne, and we had, we we had you know similar to what you guys did. We were chunking up down a bunch of pieces of ash, and we were lifting one back up. And Pete had had mounted uh, pictures on it, so he wanted to calculate its acceleration through the arc of the fall, and and he had we 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 had stapled on these grid patterns these pieces of fabric so he could take photos and then he could plot the the it you know basically the arc of this thing and so on and anyways and in that we also met we changed the angle at the rigging point and as we increased that angle we noticed measurable reduction in shock load or in, in force sorry in force at the rigging point so bend radius increased which was positive and the force at the block decreased which by all intents and purposes, seemed made sense. Well, if we can, and that was achieved by by opening the angle. In other words, running instead of running the rigging line, the fall of the rigging line running down to the base, we ran it off at an angle. And as that, and the greater that angle, the greater the force reduced. But we were having discussions about, okay, well, where did it go? Because Pete had, you know, we we learned from him that energy isn't created. So if we had a two to one reactive force when the ropes were parallel, why, where did the force go? Like where, where was the resultant force? Like, and of course we know now it went into bending moment. And it seems like that Pete 
didn't think of that or didn't. And I remember him saying at the time, like, well, we're going to get to that. Right now we're just researching this. That's going to come into play later. Because I, I can't help but thinking he was trying to, he figured, well, if he was concerned about the stability of the stem and he moved the rope angle away, which we know would reduce load because we had done that only a few months prior, but would he have just not thought about the bending moment or was it just a simple human error? Probably more than likely, right? Like, I, I know it's a terrible question to ask you, but I, I, you know, when you lose a friend and you, you go there the next day and you ask every question you can think of, and it's why I'm so intrigued and why, you know, I really, I know I'm, I mentioned Pete a lot in this conversation, which I don't normally do, but it just, it, it just brings me back to all the conversations I had with him and, you know, what you're doing, I know I'm not doing it with you, but like, I, I, I was so involved with it at the time. And uh, I, I just can't understand why he didn't yeah, think you know, it, that it's hard that to know. And I don't want to, I don't want to put that kind of heavy side load on the tree answers to it. Uh, you know, I, you, you're in a situation, you, you neglect to think about something, you're trying something new. And maybe, you know, that's, that's the scary thing about trying new things or doing new things. And sometimes we, we step out of out of comfort zone or whatever. So, I mean, I, I, I really, I don't think I can, you know, I don't think I can answer either what was going on or, or why, uh, what happened happened. Um, I think, the, I think the, you know, yeah, well, of course, yeah. but is it possible to get in a, in a, in a exactly. way of thinking yeah, yeah. like when you're in yeah. a, yeah, for state sure. of research and, where you're you know, so focused on an objective that you may not and like, oh, maybe there's a question all. here I need to answer. What happens here, and and will I will I look at this in another project down the road? You know, it's certainly a possibility. Yeah, I mean, we we hadn't we we hadn't spent a whole lot of time at the at that time talking about resultant yeah. angles, and um, you know, yeah, his his engineering background w would have would have certainly informed him on that end. But uh, it wasn't no, it wasn't common vernacular, no. right? You know, we weren't we weren't kicking it around. So, not at all, not at all. I remember we were sitting in a restaurant not long after, and I was I was playing with straws, and I, I and I I was bending the top of a straw, like and thinking about the incident and. And I just thought, you know, the, the way that stem would have moved and any climber that's taken the top off a tree, like especially a single stem tree, like a conifer, you're like, the thing's a wet noodle. Like it just, it is not moving the same. And I thought, you know, that, 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 that just somehow coincided with the defect of that lightning strike. And the site, when he adjusted the size of the top, that that just happened to send a frequency down the stem that just happened. You know, that's why his good friend Stanley, who wrote the song Like the Sea, said it was just yeah, so yeah. many yeah. little things had to align in just the right, you know, the book The Perfect Storm and how that storm, those three storms collided. Stanley called it the perfect tree for that reason. He said, like, there were so many little variables that had to all align at exactly the right place that it was just, it was, there was no way to even cast any blame or mistake. It was just meant to be for some weird, strange reason. And, and that's how Stanley chalked it up because he said, and he also, I remember, and it gave me comfort saying, you know, that Pete would, would hold responsibility at himself. He would not expect anyone to, he wouldn't blame anybody and he wouldn't, 
but but what you know what it is good about it is what's come of it and 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 frequency and wavelength huge discussions ensued following that event and and uh, the industry is at a far different place and i know that he'd be happy to know that at least unfortunately what ha- happened so thank you for indulging me on that and, and letting me talk about that because it's more about me than you but but I'm so grateful for what you're doing, and I, I, it's just a continuation. I, it, was, it was way too long in between for someone to have the passion to take it on and to do that type of research, particularly around notches, rigging, and, and that type of work. Uh, for some reason, they're, they're, you know, when we found Pete, it was a real, it was amazing to have a, a, someone that has a scientific background that actually loved oh, for sure. cutting wood <laughs> and climbing trees, you know, and the two don't very often meet, you know. Um, I want to just shift gears a little bit, if I could, and and uh, talk about you know trees and and you know the impact trees have on Matt in 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 life in general. Or do you do you draw parallels, you know, non even non scientific parallels for from 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 being part of the human forest and and and, and the trees and, yeah, and tree people. I mean, you that, know, I think, that you carry forward in your I think it's in hard, your life. It's hard to be say to say no to that question at all. Um, I, you know, I, I pretty much eat, breathe, and sleep arboriculture. Um, my daughter, you know, is proud of what her dad does and talks about it at school and that sort of thing. And we spend yeah. a lot of time, you know, as most arborists do, out walking and looking at trees and. The rest of the family is like, shut up, dad. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think, I think um, the, the idea of yeah, yeah. when we go to the urban side of things and, you know, move away from the actual forest, but move into, um, and, you know, that's probably where I spend more of my time is in the urban environment uh-huh. and dealing with, you know, sort of true street trees and backyard trees and, and uh, even some of the downtown stuff that we're working on. And, you know, I think they, um, having them in your life, we know, we know what, what canopy cover and green space does for people, you know, from a health point of view, the, the other side of research, social sciences and, and even health sciences is looking at looking at the effects of green space and there's an intrinsic um, antidote. You know, we all know that we feel better when we're in the park than we, you know, when we're in the Walmart parking lot. And um, so, you know, I think it's, it's certainly, it's an interesting time to be in the world and in the world around urban forestry and arboriculture because um, a lot is happening in our understanding, not just of the tree, uh, but our relationship with trees and how much um, we rely, you know, socially on on the environment around us and the, and the calming effect and uh, the cooling effect, you know, some of these sort of more, more numerical factors from mm. like stormwater runoff and all that stuff. But, you know, really the intrinsic, value i think is really starting to be understood on a deeper level we always knew i mean you look back in in history uh cities were keeping green space because they knew it 
kept people happy. Um, now we just know why, <laughs> you know. Um, so. but, uh, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, it is an interesting thing. And, and uh, you know, to me, the connectiveness, you know, the, you know, and I think the internet is almost an example. Yeah. Like I, like, I, you know, being a tree guy for so long, I, I, I always think of the internet like a big mycorrhizal network, right? And, and, uh, and there's these nodes that, you know, and, and we get fed by tapping into it. And, um, but I, I, you know, you mentioned yes, worldwide. Very much that, so. Do you think yeah. it is a I worldwide mean, the world of urban forest? The, the the tree thing urban these days, forest like world in, is exploding all over okay. the place. Um, uh, you know, and I, I I'm not good at rambling off conferences and numbers, but there was a huge conference recently, in just a couple of weeks ago in Europe, and you know, it it is really becoming. Um, forefront i think in a lot of urban planning the idea that we we need to we need to cool cities uh with ways other than 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 an air conditioner or heat pump you know and the really effective ones are biological (laughs) um and so you know as as i think as we Mm we go back to, to the early UFO right, work right. And, and early ecosystem services stuff that has filtered through to urban planners and they are appreciating and understanding more and more just how, how much a benefit um, green space and, and active, not only active green space for people to move in, but passive green space to look after stormwater management, how much that can have an impact on, on, on a, you know, on, on localized climate. And, uh, so I think, you know, I think people are really starting to, I hope, I think, um, put, put more precedence on it and, uh, it's good for us, (laughs) you know? Um, yeah, it's certainly changed the industry, I think to a certain degree, you know, um, yeah, yeah. ISA conferences years ago were a bunch of arborists and now we're seeing, you know, a lot more, of the urban forestry side. And some people, some people, you know, don't like to, to break them apart, but I think it's important because, you know, we often talk in uh, the subject of scale and I will, I will maintain that I'm an arborist. I work in the urban forestry world, but when I think about scale, my population is the Mm. branches on the tree and the urban foresters population are the trees themselves. And so I'm thinking, you know, on a much finer scale than than they have to think and i think it's important that we have those distinctions and that um that we allow the industries to kind of hold on to their own components you can move back and forth and it's great to have interdisciplinary actors <laughs> you know people doing all kinds of things but i think it, um it's it's it is important to you know have some focus mm-hmm. um, so that you can specialize on something a little bit more than trying to, you know, do everything. And by having that specialty, as long as you know that there's another scale somewhere out there, um, you can kind of focus in on things and it makes us better at that job. I think. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, 
you know, you've been doing different types of research for a while now. I'm, I, I guess a question I would have for you without giving up too many secrets of what you're working on in, in the, recently, but what would you, what could you specifically comment on or, or share with us that you would do differently uh, doing tree work uh, now than you would have 10, 20 years ago, let's say. Like what, what, what would, what is, what has changed? What, what's, that's what a hard question for Matt based um, on what I, you've learned. I think it's been evolving. So it's hard to, you know, look back. Uh, um, and I've evolved both as my risk tolerance has gone up <laughs> as I age and become a father and all those sort of things. So there was some natural changes in practices mm. uh, because of that. But at the same mm -hmm. time, I certainly can look back now at some scenarios I put right. myself in and think, wow, you know, that was, I could have done that so much better and so much safer um, if I just had have known what I know now, um, I used to sing, we all live in a yellow submarine at the top of my lungs when I'd throw a big top on a skinny little noodle. <laughs> and now I won't throw a big top on a skinny little noodle. <laughs> you know? So that's what's changed. Uh -huh. Now I'll climb a little higher and leave some branches below me <laughs> or get a crane. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right, right. Well, then, I mean, I think that that is a natural uh, a phenomenon of the human condition. Of like, I, I remember I was doing some training with uh, Bartlett, and the the other guest that they had brought in was a psychologist, and I was like, "What the heck?" And the reason was that they wanted their managers to understand the psychology of their workforce, which was prominently mid twenties, that the risk centers of a young man's brain is not as developed as as an older person and they're they're they don't even so to try to communicate risk to them is a very different thing because they don't they can see it and they can understand it but they don't really synthesize it as it's happening to them and they so they they don't realize they're taking the risk you're taking it whereas you take a 35 year old person or man in particular and and i ain't doing that Whereas you'd thought nothing of it at 25. I found it interesting too. They said that this individual uh, shared that in, in women, it occurs even earlier. Like women develop the risk part of their brain to synthesize and actually comprehend risk it develops much earlier, like into the late teens, into teenage years. Whereas in men, it's late 20s, early 30s. Uh, I guess that's why, you know, soldiers are usually young men. Right there. <laughs> you don't see a bunch of 40 year olds running through the barbed wire. It's, it's no uh, coincidence. We send 19 to 21 year olds to war, right? Like that's a prime example of the science bearing out what we've known culturally forever. Right. <laughs> right, right. But, but, uh, I, I, you know, but it, pruning wise or removal wise, like, you know, the it, it, interesting, you mentioned the, the, the limbs below, you know, that was, anecdotally something we started doing many years ago without any science and it and as a direct result of pete's fatality as well that you could feel the difference 
it wasn't measured, but you could certainly feel it. And your your research the the that has been released that was certainly like corroborated yeah, sure. that I or, mean, again, or proved um, it I'm quite not, conclusively that it I'm helps quite a change bit. Change in the world from uh, what we understand. That was really a project that took our our understanding of of biomechanics and applied it to the rigging scenario. And we kind of we we knew the results we were going to get because the theory said that that's what was going to happen. The question was, how much was it going to happen? Um, and in a specific incident, would it be, you know, measurable, uh, which we right. saw it was very, very impactful. And right. we've since repeated that project again. I'm wrapping that data into it in, an, in another tree uh, at a workshop in Ireland. And we got exactly the same results. Uh, okay. You know, so we're just kind of molding that data into the other set. And hopefully, hopefully that gets off to press at some point in time. So, yeah. Yeah, well, let's just, just for the sake of our listeners, I mean, not, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would probably be aware of what you're talking about, but let's just say that someone isn't. Like, what? Just if you just explain what you're talking about sure. and how it works, just as if yeah. someone never so, heard so of this it, about it before, how would you explain um, what we're talking about to someone. The effect and of, it, of as far as limbs in practice, below yeah. the rigging point uh, in a top removal scenario. So you're standing on a stem, and is there a difference if you leave a few branches below your rigging point um, on the on the forces, and particularly the amount of strain um, that the stem sees? And so we we would theorize that these these branches below become some yeah. form of damper. If they have leaves on them, they're partially aerodynamic dampers. If they're they have mass to them, they're they're mass dampers. But they they help right. to reduce the amount of energy right. that gets put into the stem and also the speed at which that energy gets put into the stem. So they're doing kind of two two things. Um, and so we 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 threw a lot of tops, and we slowly dismantled the tree from the bottom up, taking limbs off. I'm repeatedly throwing the same top time and time again. And, um, and we, we, we saw, this was a small ash tree in an open growing park, uh, about 35 centimeter DBH, I think something like that. Um, the, the, the notch top wasn't that high off the ground. I think we were maybe 10 meters up, something like that, maybe a little bit more. Um, the top that we threw repeatedly was just a log, uh, weighed about 50 kilograms, so hundred pounds. Um, and we saw a 30% decrease or 30% increase, depending on how you look at which side of it you want to look at, um, in the strain in the stem, uh, when we removed two limbs, uh, two small limbs, uh, that were natural occurring lateral limbs just below the rigging point. So these were, you know, standard ash limbs, had leaves on it, it was live. Um, but just these two small limbs that were just below the, the rigging point, they, they slowed the motion and reduced the amount of strain in the stem uh, by about 30%. And if you wanted to just elaborate on strain, strain is, are you, are you talking bending moment no. or so, are you talking? So there's a couple of ways to, to gain data. <laughs> um, and yeah, yeah. one of the 
easy ways is to measure the elongation of the fibers at the base of the tree. This gives you an idea of how much force is being put into the tree and bending it, how much it's bending. And so with a fairly simple linear strain gauge and, and the ones that we have sort of are almost nanometer sensitive. Um, so they, they measure the elongation in the fiber as the, the stem bends. If you imagine you pull on a tree, the, the fibers on the backside are going to get longer. The fibers on the front side are going to get shorter. Uh, and so we measure that at this really fine, fine scale. And we can do some things like we preload the tree. So we put a rope in it and we, we pull it um, with a known force. And so we can essentially calibrate how much force takes to bend the tree. And then when the piece comes out, we can, we can map that onto that known force, that known bending yeah. amount. And we can say, oh, this, this, this piece of wood gave an equivalent amount of force to the rigging point, upper rigging point of, I don't know, 250 kilograms of, of, of pull force. Um, right. So that, that's right. kind of right. how, the, how the system works. We can also measure track motion um, and we're working on that. The problem with tracking motion is it gets much more complex to look at it. Um, and this is actual, like using using spatial sensors. When when you look at the graph, yep. it's kind of harder to explain to people and show because there's no time element. And so, but when we measure strain, it's easy to to show that motion with a on the x-axis as time. So it's just a it's a way of kind of our brains. Um, processing what, what we talk about. And so I find that strain is kind of the easier, the easier way for my brain, <laughs> at least anyway, to, to understand what's going on. Yeah. And I can see why you, you, you know, you know, your time with Andreas, cause that the, all the pull testing stuff is all measuring all those forces yeah. with the same type of yeah. equipment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's a lot of correlation. Yeah, exactly. That's, um, you know, I, I had some help from some of the, one of the, the engineers at, um, uh, at Argus that uh, kind of helped me out on some of my ideas to come up with our strain gauges. Our strain gauges are inexpensive um, and home built, but they, they work very effectively. So, yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, very exciting. It's very cool. I, I remember you explaining about their, you know, your homemade gauges and, and uh, it's just really cool that you're able to do that and, and, and build them as well. <laughs> um well, uh, Tony, we often ask a, a, a question. Well, how much of your career would you say, Matt, has been production or like like tree work oriented, and and or how much are you at a fifty fifty stage between science research and and you know actually working in the field? I say that with quotations. Um, or where, where? How would you? Where would you classify your? progression in in that like from like for example myself i i was in the production realm for five just not not 10 years and in far many more years in the in the education realm so i wasn't a production tree worker but how would you flush your career out like that i i'm still probably more production than science at this okay. point in time i okay i did over over 10 years in production almost 15. And if I add in, you know, I'm still, I'm still trying to climb and, uh, um, I, yeah. I have made it in the last year or two, uh, a priority to get out and climb one day a week. I go and work with a company and I, uh, I don't have to, I don't have to talk to the client. I don't ruin the crew. I just go and climb the tree and, and have fun and be on rope. So that, that has helped tremendously. 
you know, mentally yeah. because the last prior to that, it was, it was not a lot of, of time on rope and a lot of time in the tree. Um, but I, yeah, I, I still, I'm early science. So I, I have a long way to go on the science end of things. Um, and I, I hope that I'll keep a good balance because I, I think it's important personally uh, to stay active and stay out there and stay in it because um, I was I was three years not really climbing and that was that was a hard three years. <laughs> my belly, my belly yeah, showed it. <laughs> yeah, well, it has that effect, and yeah, yeah I can I can totally relate. Uh, uh, yeah, not just not just belly, but like you kind of get a get a. Yeah, a beer brain as well as a beer belly. Yeah, yeah. you know if you're not if you're not careful. Yeah. But uh, Tony likes to ask likes to ask our guests a question of of in, in retrospect, looking back on their career. And I, I think uh, Tony, I was wondering if we're at that stage where you might be sure, formulating kind of asked that question for Matt. No, just, no, no. Uh, no, Matt. I usually ask our guests like if did I you. you, you if you were to wind it back or quick, whether it be in your production career or your um, even scientific or both or whatever, you know, what, what advice would you give to somebody that's getting into the field that they probably, you know, obviously work hard and things like that. But, but how would you, what, what advice would you give somebody if they were to say, I'm thinking about, you know, doing tree work for a living. Do it, <laughs> do it. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. You know, I, um, uh, I, I, I have a little bit of a teaching component uh, to the career. I'm, I'm working with both both students that are in the urban forestry world and have have no contact with a boriculture or have had very little, and they're asking about it. And then, of course, working with young climbers and young arborists as well. I think for the for the non involved for those people that have some inkling that they would like to work in the field, whether it's urban forestry or a boriculture, it's try it because um, I, I would, it's hard work. You're outside, it's cold, uh, it's wet. And if you're not into that, then maybe it's not for you. So don't go down the road of, buying gear and enrolling in a college if you don't think that's something for you. But if you have any inkling, try it, and then you'll probably be hooked because once you're in it, it's pretty hard <laughs> to, to, uh, to not see all the opportunity that is there, whether it's working feeding a chipper or whether it's doing science or coming up with, you know, tree protection plans for construction. There's so much in the field that I think people can find a niche uh, provided they're willing to be outside because you have to be outside. And for the people that are involved already, um, soak up as much as you can. You know, I think um, one of the, again, I've sort of nailed it this at a few times, like we, we, we should, I think, specialize a little bit in some component. Try not to be a jack of all trades, but at the same time, allow yourself to work for a big company, work for a small company, get some time in the municipality and see what it's like. 
get some time in, in, in education, try your hand at training, even early on, you know, I, um, I started teaching not long after I left the school, I was pretty green, but that man, when you got to teach, you got to know what your stuff and you, you think your way through scenarios and how to explain things. And that, that can really, you know, put some knowledge in your brain because you have to, you have to sort this stuff out to explain it. And teaching is one of the best ways to learn something. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's an, it's a cool industry. I have absolutely no regrets of having been in it. I wanted to be a engineer when I was in high school. That was, or I didn't want to be, but that's what I was told. And I didn't quite have the grades and man, I'm glad <laughs> because, uh, <laughs> you know, it, uh, it catapulted me in this direction and I'm super grateful for it. Um, I, I just like to just tweak that a little bit, not, not your answer, but the question, is there more opportunity for research within this, within this field of arboriculture? Like, is it for those that wanted to pursue it? Like, could you say, I want to be like, I guess, is, is, are we at a stage in the industry where someone could say, I want to grow up and be an arborist climber researcher? Yep. Is that possible? I think so. And is that? I think so. I mean, you know, our, our lab is hungry for researchers with some experience and understanding in the field. Um, you know, if you, if you can bring, if you can bring to the table a suite of experiences that includes a background in in the industry you're going to be so much further ahead than somebody that is just plugged straight through school and and hasn't done those steps not that they're not they potentially be great scientists but you know you'll 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 bring just a suite of knowledge to the to the table and so i i yeah the more the merrier really when it comes down to it. I mean, there's only obviously so much funding money, so don't take mine, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, um, uh, yeah, I, I think we, there, there's a lot of stuff happening and we're going to see it continue in the next, next little while. Yeah. Well, that's excellent. Thank you so much, Matt, for taking time and, and working through our technical challenges today and, and just being on the show. I really appreciate it.